have no idea where this will lead us, but I have a definite feeling it will be a place both wonderful and strange. Hello, and welcome to the wonderful and strange Twin Peaks Logcast. I'm Khalil, and with me today is the answer to my question. Hey, yo, this is the Unplugged Professor, and if you haven't noticed, our voices have changed a little bit. Yes, we've actually got some better equipment. Uh, It it, it was... uh, Fun time uh, being apart, but now we're just uh, over six feet apart with kind of a little bit of a fun studio setup. Social distancing! (laughs) But yes, uh, thanks to this new equipment, hopefully uh, we'll be able to give all the more better quality. I think personally that uh, some of our best interactions are just whenever we can see each other's faces. Uh, just because there's just the weirdest ticks and there's just a lot of fun with that. In fact, with the new equipment comes new tools at my disposal. So, I have things such as buttons for... There was a fish in the percolator. And... Erase it, Lucy. And who can forget... Wow. I am Johnny Cash. Wow. So I am ready to go with all sorts of fun sounds that probably will never come up. I have nothing. You didn't give me any equipment. <laughs> I gave you my equipment. Of the microphone in your face. Oh. Yeah, that's kind of like the big thing. Oh, okay. Well, <laughs> I guess that's fine. That's fine. Uh, today, we are looking at episode lucky number 13, Demons. It's called Demons. It's just called Demons? That's why I went when I when it started in the demon voice. That's my demon voice. Isn't it sc- scary? Um, Sure. Yeah, yeah, it's it's scary. Episode you 13, Demons, written by Harley Payton and Robert Engels, directed by Leslie Linka Glatter. Exciting. Yeah, yeah. Regulars to the writing and directing team. We've had a few episodes before, I believe, with this group, um, but I am always glad to see a Glatter episode. <laughs> well, I'm not too familiar. Uh, I, I had a hard time even getting to get familiar with, like, the Twin Peaks characters' names. So sure. you'll have to forgive me. Oh, I'll have I'm to not, go through. Yeah, and I don't want to pretend like <laughs> I know either. I'm trying to get better at knowing it because I think it's important, you know, at least for myself, that I start to appreciate the different names behind the scenes who had such a role in making this show what it is. Mm-hmm. Um, because, again, there's so many people that made it amazing and magical week after week after week, and I really enjoy this episode. So I want to, you know, give a little bit of kudos no, no, people. I absolutely agree. That's very exciting. And speaking of exciting things, we have Audrey back and Ben. Audrey's still here. back. Back again. Not sponsored. So Audrey... <laughs> sponsored by the Backstreet Boys. <laughs> uh, isn't that Eminem? No, what? Yeah. Guess who's back? Back again. Tell a friend Shady's back, isn't it? Eminem? Is I, I don't Wait, think, you think either of us knows the music. back because because it's, it's back again. It's Backstreet Boys. <laughs> Do you have any evidence that it's Backstreet Boys? Mm. Or just that the word back is in there. No, I just like being right in general. <laughs> All right, listeners, please send us an email at <laughs> sneakeyedreams.gmail.com telling us who wrote that song. Thank you. I'm pretty sure you're right, but yes, I'm please pretty, go on. Okay. Okay, so again, back again is Audrey. Uh, she is escorted to the bookhouse by Cooper, Truman, and then some unknown bookhouse boy who has a face. That we don't know. I prefer having face myself, so yes. Yes. Uh, 
And she's lying on the bed, kind of muttering, kind of reminds me a lot of Ronette, like semi-consciously, um, can you see me, daddy? Can you catch me? She says she's sinking. She can't breathe. Yeah, um, that, that was something. Um, here, here's, here's, okay. We might have a couple of these little moments. Uh, welcome back. Uh, let's all just sit back, relax, enjoy our cherry pie and coffee, and sit in, uh, the Unplugged Professor's Conspiracy Corner over here. Do we have a theme for that? Uh, we should. We really should. So, one of these days, we should get a theme for that. Okay. Uh, but yeah, inside of her little post-drug fun days, thanks to uh, John Renault, uh, she starts saying things like, Daddy, can you see me? Can you see me, Daddy? Can you catch me? Can you? His tongue is so heavy. The hand on my throat. It hurts me. Oh, God, it hurts me. Black cold. I can't breathe. Help me. Please, help me. I'm sinking. I'm sinking. Now, at first, I was thinking to myself, the first couple things yeah oh yeah you know maybe there was just some actual like nice memories tied to ben horn with audrey uh like some way sometime back in the past but the the, the latter lines got to me like the only one the, the only real person that i know well two people but the one i feel strongest for whenever it comes towards like larger men uh pushing themselves onto someone i think of myself uh thinking laura palmer there's also the matter that black cold, I can't breathe, help me, please, help me, I'm sinking, I'm sinking. I think of, like, the recent person that was found in the river, you know? You know, the one that was inside the little body bag at the beginning of the series? Um, the drowning Andrew person? Andrew Packard. There, yes, Andrew Packard. Mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> no, no. Uh, <laughs> Josie's late husband. <laughs> no, uh, if we were to, like, assume that somehow... Uh, like, the use of drugs is kind of strange in Twin Peaks already. And, there is a lot of it. Mm -hmm. Is there some weird chance that, like, Josie felt a connection? Josie? Oh, sorry, not Josie. Is there, like, a chance that Audrey felt this some strange connection with potentially Laura Palmer reaching um, a, with, like, drugs somehow? Because mm. these descriptions fit far better for Laura Palmer than anything I've seen of Audrey. You know, this is actually probably as good a time as any to bring up that I feel like this episode in particular, I'm going to have to take on more of a side role of just being like, Professor, that's interesting. Professor, that's interesting. <laughs> because I don't want to accidentally say something that gives anything away or steer you in any direction. And I know every episode I try to balance that out, but this is one where I can see myself making an error of judgment that'll affect things. This makes me a little bit afraid because when you bring it right here, now it's making well, me start was, to think like, maybe Audrey Horn is Laura Palmer. Well, I was going to bring it up at the beginning, but I was like, this is a good time to bring it up. I'll just say it now before I forget. Okay. So, so what I will say, because I don't want to argue for or against what you're saying. Yes. Is that if we think about the conditions that Audrey's been in, in this season so far with the complete, you know, state she's been in with the heroin, almost dying from heroin overdose and with the involvement of Jean Renault. Um, all I really will say is that consider if there are any other factors that could be causing her to say these things. Or if you do believe that it's not something Audrey's experiencing, it's something Laura's experiencing. I just am saying that you could view it either way, given the information we have. I have some other things to say, but that's going to be far towards the end of the podcast. Ooh, uh, spicy. Because there's definitely, controversial opinion here, strange things with Laura Palmer. What? But, uh, yeah, Audrey has, 
an unknown understanding of Laura Palmer, so who knows well, what might pop up. she claimed from the up. very beginning of the show that she understands Laura better than anyone else. But the, yeah, and the last line is kind of the one that kind of is scratching at the back of my head, saying, like, you should know something more. Black cold, I can't breathe. So mm-hmm. help me, help me, please. Mm-hmm. Again, I don't want to say <laughs> anything too much one way or another, just saying that you have to kind of decide for yourself what you believe Audrey's reasoning would be. Now, here was the point in which I was hoping that you just give me all the answers this episode, and Uh, then we just go forward with all the knowledge of Twin Peaks. My introduction aside, I I do not necessarily have all the answers for you. (laughs) Oh, no. I was Um, lied. Also, just fun fact, in my notes, I accidentally wrote, because I was in a hurry, heroin had nearly died from a heroin overdose, (laughs) which would have been truly sad. Our favorite character at Twin Peaks... (laughs) Heroin. heroin. <laughs> Truly the heroin of the show. Um, uh, personally, I'm more of a cocaine fan myself. <laughs> please, listeners. <laughs> if there's ever a part of our podcast you would like to clip and... <laughs> oh, no. I did not say that. You did. Um, uh, the views of the professor do not reflect the views of Khalil when it comes to the usage of drugs that may or may not be illegal in your home country. Thank you very much. <laughs> So, a little bit later on, Harry does some expositioning at Cooper and us about how who Jean Renault is. He pulls up the, the, the yearbook of crime, the school yearbook of crime, <laughs> points to the photo. This is the other Renault. He's much more dangerous than the other Renaults you've met and renowned before. You feel like you've renowned a man like him before. Here, here I was thinking that I was going to make a pun on the yearbook thing, call it the School of Hard Knocks. But yeah, no, I, I feel like I have to take back the pun now <laughs> in order to I've make up for that. It. You soil uh, it. <laughs> so yeah, he kind of expositions at Cooper like, this is the bigger and badder Renault. Yeah, I think we already got that from yeah. like context clues. Uh, yeah, we saw it, but Cooper hadn't. Well, Cooper saw the effects of it. He didn't, you know. You know. Yeah. Um, Cooper immediately jumps to blaming himself for the whole incident. He says that he has gone out of his jurisdiction twice, violated his professional code, and Audrey paid the price. He almost had a good rhyme going. He really could have, like, structured that a little bit better, and he would have been able to rhyme twice with price more naturally. But he he sandwiched in the professional code thing a little bit, and I was disappointed in him. Uh, But in either case, uh, he was very disappointed that he feels his actions caused someone he cares about to suffer, in quote, in the name of doing what he had to do. And he says this is not the first time that has happened. Yeah, and we get, and we'll likely talk more about it when it comes to Gordon Cole later, uh, just because uh, we do get more and more uh, hints towards this throughout the episode. Mm-hmm. Um, and Truman's re- uh, reaction is something to recognize as well. He considers that uh, Cooper is one of the best lawmen he has ever seen, but just sometimes he thinks too much. Do you agree with that? Both those comp- components? Do you believe I, he's one of the best lawmen, and do you believe that? His problem is one of his problems is he thinks too much. I want to get back to it when we oh. uh, talk about this Gordon is the Cole. podcast of delayed gratification. <laughs> we here at Snake Eye Dreams want to make sure that the podcast listener is exercising the virtue of patience. <laughs> we are here to facilitate your personal growth. No, I think it, <laughs> I, I think those perspectives are important with what happens later. It all builds, it all builds. Um, and I also think it's interesting again comparing. Yet again, something that happened here to an earlier or later piece in the series. Um, Cooper had told Audrey back when he w- when she was in his bed in the hotel that uh, secrets are a dangerous thing and he doesn't have any secrets. Yeah. 
Uh, between Wyndham Earl and what he just said to Truman, I'm kind of scratching my head like, <laughs> Cooper, what's your definition of secret? <laughs> because if you don't think this is a secret, um, what is a secret? And if you do think it's a secret, were you lying? Do you know you're lying? Um, were, were you not lying back then because the writers didn't know you were lying? Uh, makes me curious. Uh, in truth, it just might be him feeling it's just not information that's privy to others. Like, this is not going to be helpful for anyone else. Yeah, it's, it's not, not a secret, guys. It's just information I can't share publicly. <laughs> that, <laughs> that that usually just doesn't come up. I'm sure that uh, he will confide in Truman later with Wyndham Earl, seeing as potentially it's going to be a little bit dangerous. I mean, he was literally given uh, a little bit of a letter, mm -hmm. uh, and it is likely going to be uh, Cooper's move next. Mm -hmm. But, yeah. So, in that moment, though, Cooper's next move was to go report to Ben uh, and kind of just inform him of what has happened. But during the entire time, Cooper is just, like, eyes burning into Ben's face skull. Yeah. Just staring him down, um, trying to scrutinize everything in Ben's face over how's Ben reacting to every piece of information. So, he tells him that Blackie died, that John Renault killed her, that John escaped... He keeps giving information, just kind of staring at Ben, who's yeah. navigating through the whole thing. Um, and I guess I wanted to know, Professor, what did you think of Ben's reactions in that moment to the stuff with Blackie, Jean, Audrey's near drug overdose, the hug, the thanking him? What did you think of Ben in this interaction? Everything Ben does is layered. There is nothing that's necessarily clear. Uh, and I do truly believe in... A lie is at its strongest when truth is wrapped around it. I think he plays up a position of this intense amount of care, but also this amount of, like, trying to step away, mm -hmm. if you will, keep his own distance, have other people get their hands dirty, that he is able to play up his persona mm -hmm. all the more stronger. Um I think that Ben's probably got some things on his mind. I was hoping like Ben would get in contact or have any follow-ups with Hank, but I guess Hank just was inside of <laughs> just more so a small note in the previously on Twin Peaks. Uh, this is the part of the show where I think they're almost kind of cycling in and out of people yeah. where it's like, yeah, Hank's been used recently. We haven't had Bobby in a while. Let's put Bobby in there. Eh, we, we can give her to Lucy for a few days. We'll just throw someone else behind the counter. But it's kind of important <laughs> at this moment because Cooper yeah. came back with the suitcase and Audrey and the big instruction for Hank was to do that thing, but minus the Cooper. Mm -hmm. So yeah, it he, is an odd choice that he is not present in this one. You know, for all we know, the actor had prior like conflicts this week and couldn't be on the episode or something. It, it might we never know the details here. I, I, it's less about that. And it's just more so like I was looking for a Ben reaction to this a different actor play Hank and just show from behind the entire time. So it's just Ben talking to Hank and it's just like someone doing a Hank impersonation. <laughs> <laughs> we don't even know if he can fee face to face with Hank right now, because yeah. literally like John Renault had kind of. A fun little position on him. That's true. That's true. So. Um, and then we cut to presumably the morning because Cooper had told uh, uh, Benjamin Horn to, you know, call contact in the morning and we'll have you see her. So we then later see Ben go and see Audrey. So again, presumably the morning. And she is looking at him with just maximum suspicion. The most scrutiny, even more than Cooper's scrutiny. Yep. Um, 
Whereas Cooper looked at him with a sense of like trying to understand and engage something. Audrey's looking with kind of already a judgment in her mind. She's not trying to figure out what is Ben Horn's deal. She knows what his deal is. She says, I saw so much. Yeah, honestly, uh, it's this big like, uh, well, I don't even know how to describe it. It's a verbal battle that borders on Shakespeare, where it's oh, like it's trying good. to be subtle, but it is absolutely not being subtle. You see Cooper roll his eyes in the background as like, uh, yeah. I mean, again, <laughs> if anyone's a Shakespearean figure in this story, it's it's Benjamin Holt. <laughs> he is Mr. Shakespeare. Oh yeah, and that's where Audrey gets it. But yeah, but but uh, yeah, right though, because you know, as this scene is playing out, it's supposed to be to all eyes the touching reunion of a father and, and a daughter who's been missing. Yeah, and. That is what it is, ostensibly. Yeah. But all the while, <laughs> it's Audrey heavily implying, I know your involvement. I know what's going on. And there ben, were such terrible people there, and I know all about it. And Ben here over implying a sense of like, yeah, you know what? Uh, we're going to get you back home, relax, and we're going to talk about it. You know, sort things out. You and I together. You and I. Just you and I. <laughs> thankfully there is also the universal you because audrey does try to link cooper in on this yeah so she uh, says that she went well no actually not really she doesn't try to link cooper in this she tries to get out of her dad's sights which if you think about it that she knows stuff about her dad right the worry in ben's mind is if she goes with cooper alone to the drive if she's driven by cooper home what is she going to tell cooper on the way there yeah because since instead of ben taking her home she wants cooper and then ben's the one who does the linking we're all three let's all go together and make a trip out of it yeah it, it starts with three chain links and then ben puts it all together and it's a nice little bracelet by the end yes <laughs> sure sure and if this chaining is linking together people who have been apart for so long we get another beautiful reunion when later in the episode ben and leland are back together in the office back to the daily grind getting to know each other once again yeah it's beautiful yeah. i i love seeing you know two brilliant minds at work for the greater good of their community uh striving to serve the people of twin peaks the best they can Sure. If the people of Twin Peaks are uh, Benjamin Horn, specifically serving Benjamin Horn the best that they can. Sure, but the thing is, is that, like, Ben talks his way to be familiar with Leland again, and it sounds like the usual Ben manipulation. Leland is frightening in the respects that he is Hey, the Leland most is okay. He's 100... He's 110% okay. But he is the most impressive money handler that I've really seen in, well, in general in media. Uh, he is just distracted, just takes some fur off of a wool Turks dammy. Uh, a what Turks dammy? <laughs> a a taxidermy, like a little wolf taxidermy. He takes a little bit it of white fox. fox. Wolf, wolf. No, wolves are big. Wolves are huge. <laughs> Wolves are like big, big, big dogs. A white furred animal. <laughs> yeah. He partakes on a little bit of fur, puts it in his little pocket. He's just distracted while, like, Ben just assesses him on the situation. And as soon as, like, he gets uh, Leland's full attention, Leland has a full course plan that mm -hmm. can uh, even get them just money on the way, just passively in general, and can store some money on the side just in case, like, things go awry. Mm -hmm. he, he just does that, like, that and it just makes me wonder we've seen like leland in a personality of like mourning mm -hmm. we haven't seen much of him outside of that we haven't seen him as like ben's 
sideman in this. He might right. be as malicious as uh, Ben and Jerry are. Sure. And that's the thing is that, you know, this is episode 13. We've had 12 episodes of him through various stage of grief and mourning, uh, very heightened emotions. But we haven't seen him back at work. Like, yeah. How knowledgeable is Leland in Ben's general dealings? I mean, yeah. in the end, later on, Josie says that apparently she has enough information to lock him for about three years. I think, again, without saying more than I can, if he represents Ben legally... Um, and knows as much as he does in this conversation, I think it's pretty clear that he's not unaware, right? Like, he's he's in within um, Ben's trust circle enough that Ben lets him know about the foreign interests with, like, Tajimura, right? Yeah. So he's he's in enough of that inner circle to be aware of that matter. He's It doesn't seem like, at least in this conversation, Ben doesn't mention giving Tajimura's check to Josie, because that would have already happened, I believe, at this point in the episode. Yeah. So he's not saying that part of it. So Leland may or may not know about Josie, which would mean he may or may not know about the fire. Yeah. It's, but he for sure knows about the intricacies of where the money's coming from officially. Yes. And it, it it definitely shifts the perspective just looking at Leland because you think of this like sometimes oafish, uh, just mm-hmm. overall family man who seems to care a lot. Uh, you could say we're getting to know him. We are definitely getting to know him. <laughs> Flash forward a little bit, and, and Leland is serenading the audience of the Great Northern very personably, you know, talking about where everyone's from as he's singing the song, Getting to Know You. And he's singing this while Benjamin Horn is also getting to know someone even closer. Our dear friend, as portrayed by the legendary Fumio, Mr. That's his first name, Mr. Tajimura. I'm sure that's all we have to talk about on that. So how about we just move on? Um, No, I know you want to say more about Tajimura. I don't know if I want to. I feel mean. I feel rude to this man because every time I look at this person, all I could think to myself uh, is, is that this... Who programmed hey, Tojimura? You got to be really careful, okay? His family was at Nagasaki. He knows a thing he, about he fire. He knows a thing about fire. Okay. It's hard to say. He's, he, you know, his family was at Nagasaki. He, he's... I, I don't want Getting to be to mean. You. I don't want to be mean. He is a very shiny man, and he might be a nice man. Shiny? He, like, he's very shiny in the scene. Like oh, I wasn't paying attention to that part, I guess. Yeah, the light literally just kind of like high, very much reflects off of this man <laughs> as he's sitting down in this chair, and he has like a very strange like boxish Next figure. episode, he reenacts like the cover art of Pink Floyd, where it's the... Dark side of the moon. He's just a prism where rainbows are shooting out of every direction. Like, here's the thing. <laughs> like, I don't want to, like, cause any means of shame against anyone who might uh, have similar okay, figures to Tojimura about just or his, his appearance. What do you think of his character in this scene? It's always distracting because of the way he sounds. You can't even, like, focus on it. It's hard. Well, because, I mean, like, there was a little bit given here because Tajimura was getting upset that, you know, Ben has the $5 million check and Tajimura doesn't have anything yet. And Ben's trying to, like, talk around it. And Tajimura's like, you waste, I can't even do the voice. You waste my time. We shall withdraw. And then, you know, spills the beans about Nagasaki. And Ben's just like, yeah, this, I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, I don't even know how to react to that sort of phrase. It's, it's just, 
I feel like anything that I try to approach with Tajimura. There is more that I want to say, but I will hold off again another time. Okay. Another time. Uh, we cut a little bit uh, as, as far as it goes, Fumio. Uh-huh. Overall, I hope the best for you. Uh, I do not mean to sound cruel to you. Me and Fumio down by the schoolyard. <laughs> uh, I think that's all I can really say. So... Well, we're not done with him yet. I'm sorry, oh, no. to, sorry to announce this. Oh, no. We see him later sitting next to um, Pete Martell, uh, who just keeps wanting to make small talk with him about musicals, yeah. Fiddler on the Roof, how it made him weep like a baby. And Tajimura just turns around, you know, I find the adherence to fantasy troubling and unreasonable. And Pete's just like, mm-hmm. you're not around here, are That's you? That's it. That's it. Tajimura sounds like a soft-spoken Batman. What? Like, was you know that what this. what I was going for? You know, like, the Dark Knight, it sounds deep like this. Tojimura sounds a bit like this. Yeah. Yeah. And Batman's cool. Tajimura's cool. Fumio, cool. I am a visitor. And then, Pete, can I buy you a sake? Like. <laughs> or a nice cold milk. The two drinks that you buy this vaguely Asian, vaguely human being in okay. front of you. Okay, no, 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 no. He, <laughs> let, 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 give me a moment on this. Yeah. Because... No, it straight up sounds like... No, I am confident. This is a person making a voice. Okay. This is not someone making an accent. I feel less bad now. I am... I am very certain this is... Ah. Uh, ah. Uh, you is... know, this is actually the advantage of us doing the podcast in person. <laughs> is I can see the anguish. <laughs> I can see the struggles. <laughs> this is... And I can't say anything. This is... Ah. Uh. <laughs> Who is Tojimura? And and there's also this strange, like, like yes, Pete is trying to make, like, this little uh, kinship conversation mm-hmm. after he, like, snaps and says, yes, the king and I, uh, speaking about the uh, performance. And he starts trying to talk about Fiddler and the Roof here and there. But uh, T- Tojimura is just trying to wave it off, if you will. There's this, like, strange sense, like, like I, I'm getting almost like I don't know what kind of connection, but it looks like either a connection is trying to be forced, or there's something about uh, Tojimura that seems to be linking in Pete. Uh, I guess I don't know that much about Pete uh, and his company, other than it's like Josie. <laughs> the secret and- diary of Pete Martell. <laughs> Tell all. <laughs> I mean, in the end, like at this point, I don't know what the next scene will. Maybe there the. Maybe there will be an interesting scene in which mm-hmm. we're going to see uh, s- uh, some more uh, Pete slash Tojimura uh, shipping, if you will. I'll be writing my fan fiction <laughs> as we speak. Uh, well, speaking of shipping, we're about to ship Josie out of the country. Yeah. Are you excited? Do you hate Josie? Are you glad to get rid of her? I am very. Here's the thing. Like, I don't dislike Josie. Mm-hmm. I like the ideas of her story. I'm just very indifferent to the character at a moment. Mm. Uh, it, that's the problem. You have a situation where a character is so unclear in their morals and their background that you're left kind of not really sure what to feel. It reminds me of, I'm, I'm, I dabble a little bit in like WWE and professional wrestling. And um, I, I if, if you're a more avid fan out there, correct me if I'm just wrong on this, but like there's the, there's certain wrestlers who move between face and, uh, and heel the good guy and bad guy so often that you're kind of just like left like, wait, am I supposed to root for him or boo him right now? And uh, like, like the big show, I think he's flipped like 30 times over his career. So it's like, how do you look at someone like that? Like, do I cheer 
Do I boo? And you're kind of just like, I don't know. Which is why, like, in, in wrestling, there's not a lot of people who are in the middle. You usually are either a face or a heel because the audience has got to know how to react to you. Mm. And and Josie's one of those characters who I don't think we're consistently given to you of how to react to her. Honestly, the most interesting portions have been her and Hank. Um, mm-hmm. Even with her and uh, quote-unquote Jonathan, I don't mm-hmm. know. Do we refer to him as Jonathan? Um, that's. I don't think we've been given another name more official. Okay, gotcha. So between her and Jonathan, even with this little bit of tension, I did not get as nearly as much um, excitement on the character or get as much feeling from Josie mm-hmm. as I did when uh, Hank sort of busts in, which is interesting because we already know, uh, unless Hank faked it, the power level of Jonathan is much higher. Yeah. So. Well, he's certainly commanding with Josie. It's just, I guess it depends on what you mean. So yeah, we see in this episode, Jonathan has almost complete direct control of Josie. The, the scene opens up with, you know, cousin Jonathan, you know, basically buckling his pants back up his belt, implying that, you know, he had had sex with Josie. Yeah. Um, Which Josie does not seem happy about that. Based on Josie's reaction, it may or may not be sexual assault. Yes. Because the first thing she says in that scene is, please go. Um, Whatever you want to make of it, it was obviously not something she enjoyed or was happy about. Yeah. She she wants him gone now. The the severity of it, we don't know, but it's definitely not a very good look. Not no. a good look, Jonathan. Not a good look. And, uh, you know, he, he basically orders her around. You have a one-way ticket from Seattle to Hong Kong. We leave tonight. You better be on the train. And then he, he ascertains as he's gripping her neck that, you know, she still cares about the sheriff. And if she does not go on the train tonight, he'll be there to pay her a visit and the sheriff a visit. So he's commanding physically. He's commanding emotionally. He's commanding, like, where she's going to go, dictating that. And even in a sexual sense, that dominance is there. So... The thing is, like, if we're going by power levels, yes, he's been beat by Hank. He is—he's seeming to be he portrayed. Yes, you're right. He's—he's be, he's, he's beaten Hank, and he seems to be portrayed as more powerful in every sense. However, the only difference is that Hank is someone who we've speculated in the past what his own agenda is. Whereas with Jonathan, at least at the moment, it seems like Jonathan's taking orders from Mr. Eckhart. It seems like he's he's following someone else's orders. And so we don't have this dynamic of like, ooh, what is he thinking during this? I'm already I'm just kind of like, okay, this is I guess this Eckert dude. We haven't met. Mm-hmm. Right? It's hard to have an emotion about Eckert. Um and also missing is that when it was Josie and Hank, Josie could have a one up on Hank. It was a power struggle. Yes. This is not a power struggle. This is a train wreck. Like Josie doesn't seem to be having anything to stand up at least at this time. Right? Like she's getting steamrolled right now by this guy who doesn't seem to have his own agenda. Mm-hmm. So I can see why that's not as satisfying as Hank for you. Yeah. You know, um, he in some ways is a Hank replacement, but he's also not really comparable. Now, m- now mind you, uh, there's still a very good It's like Jos- replacing potato chips with rice cakes. <laughs> now, mind you, there's a very good instance in this episode mm-hmm. where we do get to see more power plays from Josie and I really do enjoy this scene uh, and that's between Ben and Josie yes we get a moment in which uh Josie suddenly has a signature uh ready for Ben and mm-hmm. personally on my end I'm not convinced uh that was an off-screen point that maybe Pete signed it maybe that was the case I'm not convinced uh she ends up hand uh hand Trying to, like, uh, dangle it over, like, a little fish lure, and says, like, no, uh, I need my money. And Ben's just like, well, there's processes. You can't just do this immediately. 
I'm not yeah, really... with, with her quicksilver mind. He like he compliments her. She's a quicksilver mind. Surely you understand the complicated position. You know, everything's fluid. You know, I can't summon cash reserves. I just simply don't have. Yeah. And then Josie just puts her foot down and then Ben just kind of gets a hint that saying like, you're in a hurry, aren't you? Mm-hmm. He senses that she's under pressure and he decides to eventually after back and forth, uh, threaten her. Yes. Right. That this key he's holding will unlock his own personal hotel safe. That is a fascinating dossier on her and her late husband, Andrew's little boat that went boom. And she says, and he says, believe me when I say that I will bury you. And meanwhile, she kind of holds up her own personal key saying like, well, uh, it'll be a shame if they end up finding this little key that leads to a safety deposit box in a different city <laughs> uh, with enough information to lock you away for three lifetimes. Wouldn't it be great if then Tajimura's head just popped up <laughs> in between the two of them? <laughs> and <laughs> I have <laughs> another this, check in this remote control. <laughs> turns on a TV that activates a pulley system, which will then create, what, what are those devices called? We're like, uh, Rube Goldberg, Rube Goldberg machine. <laughs> <laughs> that will then write a check for $5 million. Uh... <laughs> um, but no, I love that scene. I've told you before that I am always ready and willing to encounter scenes where Ben is experiencing power struggles with other people who have power. Which, by the way, uh, Ben ends up giving uh, the check he got from Tojimura and signs that over to Josie yes. for the $5 million. Yes. Uh, whether that is yen or dollars, it is to be seen yet. From the Bank of Hong Kong. No, no, Bank of Tokyo. Is it Bank of Tokyo? Yeah, it's Tokyo. Ah. That's where I thought Tojimura might be Japanese. Okay. Why do I think it was is Hong Kong mentioned in this episode? Hong Kong is mentioned because that's where Mr. Eckert is and that's um, where Josie uh, is supposed to be sent. So gotcha. Hong Kong is mentioned. My bad. You're bad indeed. Um, oh, but no. but yeah, uh, he hands over the check to Josie, which I think that at this point, now that like uh, <laughs> Tojimura is just suspicious, even in more things, thank you for your impression. Uh <laughs> It's it just makes me think that they're just faking each other. Fake okay. signature with a fake check. Uh so I I'm hoping that this is just going to be a fun little double cross but potentially unintentionally. I don't think Ben and Josie would ever engage in such duplicitous behavior. What? <laughs> uh and then the last thing we have on Josie is that she's about to leave when like conveniently Truman just shows up ready to talk to her. I mean, like, I don't know if they had prior plans or like he just shows up every night. I mean, we've only been in this town for like a little over two weeks now. I mean, I don't know how frequently he's over there, but he shows up right as they're packing. Uh, Josie introduces him to Mr. Lee, her assistant, who's Jonathan again. Um, And, uh, you know, she says that this place here in Twin Peaks, this mill, is where she could call him and talk to him, referring to Truman, be everything that Truman wanted her to be, but she sold the mill. It's over. She's going home. Truman in a stunning move of eloquence and intellectual conviction, says the most amazing argument ever, no, I love you. Which, you know, Benjamin Horn, he's good at arguing things, he's good with his words, but you know what makes Truman even better? He says it twice. But the thing is that Josie still makes it outside the door. She does stop each yes. time he says it. So maybe if he said it the third time, it's like the swiper no swiping, in which like <laughs> she does finally stop with the third time, I mean, but it was all, too late by the end. So all, she got away. All joking aside, I think there is something very nice in the fact that, you know, we've seen Josie interact with three men in this episode in a back and forth kind of manner. And they're all very different experiences. 
Mm-hmm. Because with Jonathan slash Mr. Lee, we have this sort of confrontational dominance where she is trying to get out of the boot, the heel that is crushing her. Mm-hmm. And with Ben, she's on equal footing and very cutthroat, and it's very implying the backstabbing, but also just kind of like, ha ha, of course we would never need to do that, would we? And and having this sort of manipulation behind it, very wordy, very verbose. And then with, with Truman, these very sentimental, soft-spoken um, mannerisms where Truman's argument doesn't need to be this giant speech like Ben. It doesn't need to be a threat like Jonathan. It's just repeating that he loves her. That's it. And I think that that just reveals so much about the different kind of men that these people are, mm-hmm. but also that Josie, like which one is the real quote unquote Josie, mm-hmm. which, which side of her are you supposed to cement as her character? You know, is, is, which is the most true Josie between these three interactions? Okay. Is she the submissive person who is uh, kind of a victim in the whole situation, you know, being controlled by Mr. Eckert and outside forces is she a cunning intellectual who is Mr. Horn's equal? Or is she a sentimental, romantic person who just wants to be with the person she loves? Honestly, I don't see that how these would have to be individual, like like, right. like all exclusive. And that's uh, why she's a face and a heel. And why we're <laughs> kind of just like, I don't know how to feel. But that also makes her one of the more dynamic characters in the show right now. Okay. I don't know if you would agree the next character is as dynamic, maybe or maybe not, uh, Harold Smith. He's dynamic in certain ways. Expand. (laughs) Well, he's dynamic in his um, presence. He definitely gives off a rather bit of a boom in this episode. Uh, Harold says that he feels contaminated by Donna uh, after their little confrontation earlier and after uh, having a little face rubbing time with his gardening tool. I know you found Harold very um, creepy, like bad vibes. Are you still getting that? Like, what's your main feeling on Harold right now? Harold scraped his face with a gardening tool at an interaction that he felt betrayed with, which I don't think that that is... A common reaction. No, he's an uncommon person. And he, the thing is, is that he feels like betrayed by Donna and he's talking about the sense of impurity. But at the same time, he clings onto a diary of Laura Palmer. Mm -hmm. And Laura Palmer in general, where I think there's an argument, she seems unclean. She at least even presents herself as a bit unclean. Well, you could possibly interpret it let me let me portray it two different ways for you. Again, playing the playing the field here, and this is I don't want to say too much of what I think. You can view it in the side that it is a double standard that he's holding onto this diary of Laura Palmer, and Laura Palmer representing a deeper contamination and a deeper kind of sense of, you know, do you trust this person than Donna ever has, and that for Harold to come so aggressively at them. And even though it's violence upon himself, still to do that act of violence, um, are we sure that he himself is as pure as he thinks he is? Or has he already been contaminated in some sense? The, the flip side of it, though, that I'll offer is when he says to Donna that she's just like all the others, she lies and betrays and laughs about it. Could all the others refer to Laura, too? I mean, it potentially. Uh, it's just the fact that he is willing to... 
be more aggressive and angry uh, outright mm-hmm. whenever it comes to someone like Donna while he seems maybe a little melancholic, maybe a little bit distant whenever, like, Laura Palmer comes up to the subject. Mm-hmm. I find that to be interesting. Um, but at the same time, I'm not even convinced that Harold necessarily thinks he's pure. Mm-hmm. I think that in the end, he's just afraid of impurities more well, than he claimed anything. that he was, he was thinking of returning to the world because in Donna, he had found something decent and pure. Mm-hmm. Um, do you believe he meant that? Uh, I think that I think that he is being truthful. I don't think that he him trying to lie mm-hmm. in that sense will be any bit beneficial to him. Uh, I think that he has poor judgment because it's been almost nonstop that uh, she keeps like reaching for the diary. Well, to us as a viewer, but I think it's only happened one time before, right? Uh, he, in the end, uh, she ends up like snatching the diary, running out of the home yes, at one point. That was the first she time. She ends up like prying and prying to him saying like, yes, uh, I would really want to like hear from this diary, see this diary. Mm-hmm. Uh, please. I'll even share my own story. Right. Like it, at the very least, she may have not made as many actions to it, but she definitely has been like two stepping in that direction. I think this is one of those cases where the fact that we know the show moves at the pace it does, we're not led to believe that they've actually been meeting multiple times in between. But that's the thing. The time that uh, we're moving at is still been about, what, 12 days? Right, but they've only known each other for like two visits. Yeah. You know what I mean? So uh, it's no, like, no, not more. Not not two visits. There's been more. There's been multiple Meals on Wheels. There's been two Meals on Wheels deliveries. Uh, there have been snippets in which she has been sitting down with Harold. So I think that's more so about, about four or five. Uh, I don't think it's been four or five days since Harold's been introduced. I, I think that's four or five visits at least. Uh, at the very least, uh, we can consider the fifth. The fifth iffy one was the point in which like, she was leaving the note at Harold's door. Uh, and yeah, I guess I, I don't want to argue that too much when neither of us have any proof right now but i i am i'm pretty confident in saying that it has not been five days i know that we first have an interaction over the phone and then there are some visits i guess either way i think this is one of those cases where if we had indication that a lot of time has passed where you know he she's been coming and telling her life story and he's been writing it down and we know that that's been a pattern a habit that would give us understanding for Harold that he could trust her and it could also give us understanding of why Donna feels the way she does about Harold in return. It would give us a lot more to work with, but if they've only known each other for a few days, anywhere from two to five, that's not really a lot to build up this high expectation of purity. I I, I also kind of have a hard time like trying to work in like how strong connections and relationships are in Twin Peaks when it comes to like this life uh, bond that Truman and Cooper have yeah. after the few days. It's really weird. And, and I think it's an important aspect of Twin Peaks, whether it's on purpose or not, whether it's considered good or not, but, you know, subjectively, time moves very strange in this show. Yes, most other shows are episodic to the nature where, you know, you don't know how many days have passed, but it's implied, you know, like your standard crime drama where every episode is its own plot line. You know, it could be months since the last episode or weeks or days. Yeah. This one, you know, we hardly ever really know. Like, even when I said that, well, presumably Ben came back in the morning to talk to Audrey because Cooper had said, I'll, you know, call you in the morning and then we see Ben later. But we don't actually, like have a clear indication that a day has passed and it's the next morning. We just Mm -hmm. have to infer that based on Ben's location there now. (laughs) And we don't know if that's true for every character. For all we know, the events that happened with Donna could have happened last week. You know, we don't know (laughs) if they're concurrent. 
so whether you like it or not, I think it's interesting that from the beginning of the show until now even, this show has had a weird relationship with what time it is. Yes. What's going on. Yes. Um, but I will say one thing. Okay. It was definitely time for Action James. Because Action James, he comes into Harold's dorm domicile, I was looking for a word there, comes into the domicile, he beats up Harold, he, they unlock in a, in a mortal combat, uh, I believe that he grabbed all the books on the shelves and started throwing them at Harold, and then Harold activated his, his super uppercut, and then James pulled a motorcycle out of his pocket and took Donna and Maddie out of the house. And I think that was a great action scene. Much better than if he had just walked in and grabbed them and they left unceremoniously. Yeah. Yeah. I'm just going to leave that there. I, I don't think I can touch it up anymore. I think that that... that Make sure to add some like Batman sound effects in your post nah, editing. I think it's perfect as is. Uh, so we see Harold furiously tending to his plants and like screaming as... Uh, With a distorted sound in his voice. Yes, which... Spooky, spooky, whenever we hear the vocal distortions. Yeah. Uh-huh. Um, and we get some scenes then. We don't know how far from the house they are, I don't think. But but by the road where uh, James is talking to uh, to, to Donna. And uh, James says, that, you know, after Laura died, everything went so fast. It's hard to know what to believe in. It's like if we if we could put our hearts together forever. And it just they're, they're making the smoochy smoochy, the hottest <sighs> neck kissing this side of the highway. You didn't like that scene? Was it was it was it too enticing? Was it was it too too hot for TV? This the worst part mm -hmm. about Twin Peaks mm -hmm. is Donna and James. Oh no, we 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 were away from them for a while. We got them separated. I know, and it was great. <laughs> but like a magnet, they pulled themselves back together. Two Why? hearts made whole. Why? There's nothing compelling here. There's someone who just thinks that, yes, as long as we hold on to one another, we will be fine. Do, do, do. No, no. This is a very... Did you feel better about the scene that comes later then with James and Maddie? That I have conflict with, uh, but it is so good closure. Better? better? <laughs> it's conflict. Oh. It's conflict. Tell, tell, tell me about it. I'll tell a little bit. <laughs> story oh, time. Story time. Donna, but not Donna. It starts with once upon a time. It starts upon once upon a time. There was a Maddie and a James, and they went to a nice little park as the Twin Peaks theme played. Do to do. And, yep, that's exactly the Twin Peaks theme. <laughs> and they confided in one another. <laughs> and uh, Maddie was just kind of talking about uh, how even, like, with people treating her with, like, Laura, especially uh, James, is that she ended up liking it. Mm -hmm. And she just goes on and on, and they, she says that she's going to be leaving Twin Peaks tomorrow. Vroom, vroom. And uh, she'll be going back home. Uh, it gives uh, James a kiss on the cheek and departs. It's a very sweet scene. Aww. If you think of it as just uh, just as a usual scene, like, you know, Maddie is leaving. This room, is room. closure for James. Aww. I, 
I, I, hmm, I have a complicated relationship with uh, Maddie uh, as far as <laughs> what thoughts. she is. <laughs> We have to address this. Like, like Maddie, Maddie <laughs> states that she uh, she remembers uh, her time with Laura and that she could hear Laura's thoughts. Mm-hmm. Like, we could take that as metaphorical. Typical I'm not going cousin to. relationship. Typ- Am I right? Yeah. Hashtag cousins. Hashtag cousins. <laughs> and Maddie got the chance to be Laura, and for a while she got to be someone different. But for now, she is just herself again. I'm going to repeat that. She got to be someone different. But now she is herself again. Aww. She says that she's going to be going home uh, and tomorrow. But the thing is, is that she's not really like in denial of being Laura. She just talks about how people saw her as Laura. Yeah, she got to put on the wig. Yeah. And if you put it sort of in that little bit of context, thinking to yourself that, Potentially, she's Laura adjacent or has something much larger to do with Laura. This becomes more important. I My brain goes back to the point where she's like stuck in the room after the James trauma. And oh, you, you know, good old Mike. You remember good old Mike as he crawls straight into her face? That's fun, isn't it? What do you mean? Uh, there's a point where Maddie is, uh, after James runs out of the room, mm-hmm. uh... You mean Bob, though? No, oh, Bob, I'm sorry. Yeah, like, Mike, Bob and Mike, Mike... I keep getting go- back okay, and forth between no Bob offense, and Mike. No offense, but Mike crawling would have a little more trouble. <laughs> but, uh, yes, Crazy Bob comes crazy forward. Bob. And, uh, he just gets inside of Maddie's face. I have thoughts, but as far as, like, involvement goes, like... Bob has been present for Leland, for Leland's wife. Sarah. For uh, Laura Palmer, mm-hmm. as well as uh, Ronette. Correct. Maddie is a weird one. Like, sure, she is connected to the Laura Palmer family. And sure, if we, like, have that argument on whether or not she can have these visions, like where it happens hereditarily, mm-hmm. that can be said. But it's still weird for per and I, I did mention Leland did before also having like seeing Bob yes, at you, least though the Palmer family just in general just the Palmer family I'm just there's things that concern me especially mm-hmm. with that bobbling so yeah I like this would be the scene where like as Maddie just walks off the screen and goes back into the ocean off to uh Missoula Montana uh that you think to yourself that yeah then no this is finally gonna stop the crazy train for me no Oh, it's still chugging along. Did she mention Missoula, Montana? You just remember that. Uh, she lives somewhere. I'm just kind of impressed you remember that. It is Missoula. You're right. It is Missoula. Yeah. Yay! I got a fact right. She she will be going to Missoula, Montana. <sighs> well, I can't say much. I told you I can't say much. I know, and there's something. I'm, I'm just going to put a pin. We're going to go at the very end, I'm sure. It was where we are going to talk about it, But I'm going to put a pin hey, on listener, her going back. This this episode, <laughs> hashtag patience, hashtag put a pin in it. <laughs> hashtag cousins. <laughs> hashtag cousins. Uh, uh, <laughs> also, hashtag atmosphere. I just want to make a quick non- uh, intrusive uh, comment that I liked some of the visuals and sounds in this episode. Uh, I talked last time about my uh, appreciation 
of the one-eyed Jack's hallway scenes. And I like this episode's use of the forest during the second opening credits. Yeah. It has like opening credits, then interrupts it for a little bit for a scene, then goes back to opening credits and it continues like lurking slowly roving through the forest at night. And then we have the waterfalls panning up to the great Northern kind of like a red lighting over the great Northern. It's Mm. great for the mood and considering how important the woods seem to be, but we don't actually go there very much. (laughs) uh, I think those kind of shots matter a lot Mm -hmm. because we don't, we spend a lot of time in this show indoors. Mm Mm-hmm. Like, the Maddie scene with James is one of the few examples where they're by, like, water. They're outside. But generally, there's so much that happens indoors in a police station or in the Great Northern itself that the moments that they spend outside establishing shots of the trees, the water, the waterfalls, the wind, everything, the animals, those, I think, are so important for the mood. Um, so I appreciate when I see them. And for a, for a non-outdoorsy one, I also really like the transition into the, um, the, cigar, the cigar lighting. I think that's when it goes into Ben and Josie, I believe. Um, or maybe it's, no, it's Tajimura and Ben. Uh, when he's when they're lighting the cigars, it like goes a close-up on the cigar and then zooms out from there. I really like those shots. Mm-hmm. So, no. good job. Yeah, it's impressive. You get a smiley face star. Yeah, honestly. It's scratch and sniff. It, you scratch it, it smells like a smiley face. Yeah, honestly, the sets and uh, locations, as far as Twin Peaks is concerned, have uh, overall a lot of potential for just overall communication on just mm-hmm. the sets and moods as well as uh just a few fun creative moments uh such as like spiraling through the walls of the police station uh yes. from one of the prior episodes yes yeah and i think no scene better exemplifies the sort of grasp of mood that the director has than our immersion into the leo johnson party yep i wish i could do a kazoo noise with my mouth right now and i mean you could try <laughs> Good job. I did it. I can't even whistle. This is embarrassing. Uh, so Leo Johnson, he looks good in red, by the way. Looks very good in his bright red shirt. Mm-hmm. I mean, Leo Johnson looks good in every color. Am I right, ladies and some gentlemen? Am I right? Um, eh? I couldn't even remember his shirt color. Oh, it was very bright. It was very red. There was a lot of bright stuff on him as he was covered in streamers, as well as the party hat, as well as the sunglasses, as well as the kazoo. So forgive me for not noting his shirt hey, color. I just got to appreciate the finer things, okay? I didn't see if he had any new shoes on him, but I did see the red, and I appreciate that. Uh, it was good to see Bobby again. It's been, like, eight episodes. Mm-hmm. It's good to see him. Well, Shelly's good, too, but we've seen a little bit of Shelly. Yeah. We haven't seen any of Bobby. Um, yeah. So it's good. It's good to see uh, him. Good to see Mr. Pinkle. Long time no see, Mr. Pinkle. Oh, so that was Pinkle. That was Pinkle. Okay. He had them sign the custody papers. They're going to stay there full time. He gives them their check, and he, like, tactically dodges when Bobby starts showing anger. No, I'm. I, 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 does that make him like Mr. Pinkle Brockman? Is Brockman his first name? Where does it say Brockman? At? It, it says in subtitles Brockman. What? Okay, hold on. I'm fact checking this. Episode. <laughs> Did I say the wrong thing? Is it? Yeah, not a no. Pinkle? Pinkle is much younger. Is that a Pinkle or is that a Brockman? <laughs> Welcome to the new segment inside of our show. Is that a Pinkle or a Brockman? Uh, Tom Brockman. Can't believe I'm I'm embarrassed. <laughs> uh, okay, you're right. Um, I just got the internet to load. It is a Mr. Tom Brockman insurance <laughs> representative. He kind of looks pinkle-ish. He's pink. Uh, this is his only episode <laughs> no. appearance. He's never again in the series. <laughs> so, uh, oh, that's a shame. Good job, Ian Abercrombie. Is that the guy who owns Abercrombie and Fitch? No. Oh, anyway, uh, so so not Pinkle, 
tactically dodges Bobby when Bobby starts showing signs of anger because what he thought was going to be a $5,000 a month check is $700 a month. And the thing is, is that he does give off uh, some pinkled vibes towards Dan. Like, at first, he's very, like, <laughs> kindly, and he's just, like, saying, like, oh, you know what? You guys are the best. You guys are doing so much for good old Leo, staying home and doing this. Honestly, at-home care, it's truly a miracle. This is great. And they're like, wait a second. How does 5000 turn into 700 a month? Oh, well, you know, uh, fees and taxes and charges and... Uh, oh, who knows? I'll, I'll get myself out of here. Bye. Okay. I'll just find myself the door. Oh, here you go. Oh, who's a good Leo? All right, goodbye. But, you know, say what you want about Bobby and Shelly. I think one thing we can say with confidence is that they deeply care about Leo Johnson. And their dedication to Shelly's husband is so beautiful that they throw him a party. Mm-hmm. where he is the star. He is certainly a star. He is a shooting star burning up in the atmosphere in a flaming ball of gas, yep. hurling its way, face-planting into a cake. <laughs> There's details in between. There's details in between. So Shelly's, Shelly and Bobby have clearly been drinking. Uh, Bobby's wearing the, the cone birthday hats over his ears. Shelly's like repeating everything. Like Bobby says every other few words Yeah, as they make out on the table in front of, uh, Leo Johnson. Yeah. They're just really getting amped up. They're just getting out of all their dirty laundry. Just saying like, you know what, uh, Leo, you're such a genius, uh, putting a sock in the, putting a soap into socks just to keep the injuries internal and you know what you're also a murderer you know what leo johnson you're such a cool guy you're a class act don't let anybody ever tell you you don't know how to treat a woman buddy yep and they begin to uh have a fun time uh making out in front of his body which by the way like even intoxicated just in general like i (laughs) i can't find this to be comfortable um I mean, they have the smell of hot box pizza wafting in the air next to them because, you know, they're making out next to the pizza box. Yep. <laughs> but, you know, the really attentive Twin Peaks viewers know hot box pizza. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, at the moment, uh, amongst, like, uh, this bit of passion that they're having in front of Leo, mm-hmm. uh, Shelly looks at Leo and she swears that Leo looks back at her. Like, you see uh, inside of it, like, Leo's head turned towards her direction. And then we just cut back, and it just seems like he's in his usual catatonic state. But as soon as, like, Shelly panics and says, okay, this is just weird, Uh, I swear I saw him move, Bobby uh, complies. Like, he, as soon as he hears that, he believes Shelly, it seems, and he is subservient mode again when it comes to... Good old Leo. He even says, like, you know what? We took it too far. I'm sorry. You know what? Uh, we got you a cake. Here you go, bud. I'll get things ready. And just, like, uh, <laughs> pats him on the shoulder and unintentionally flies his face into a cake. <laughs> and I love, and again, you know, Shelly looks upset about that at first. But then Bobby's like, well, thank goodness we didn't light the candles. And then she, you can see the, the smile crack through. And, um, you know, yeah. big props to the actors here. Uh, all three of them. Because being catatonic in a chair and letting this all happen to you and not reacting at all. Um, good job for Eric DeRay, Leo's actor. Unless, like, there's a secret in which, like, there's, like, 12 takes uh, with 12 cakes. Even if there are, they got this take and they it's got, good. Yeah. No, and, they did a great job. Now, here's the thing I have to say to that. Uh-huh. Is that... Leo Johnson pulls off this horror movie monster version of him yeah. way better than I've ever seen of his prior performances. Uh, he he has this uh, very, like, uh, I would say almost um, 
80s movie villain vibe mm-hmm. of just like this uh, antagonistic, just furious force. Oh, yeah, some Michael Myers kind of energy going here. Um, but now it is Michael Myers. Um, yes. Because, or uh, maybe even Jason Voorhees, whoever's as a, your insert silent killer, as like his head sort of turns through, mm-hmm. like legitimately, it did give me chills. This is horrifying. And just having the scenario in which a Leo Johnson might have a sense of sentience that he is holding back. No, th- this could be a horror movie all on its mm-hmm. own, uh, outside of the context of Twin Peaks. So It's a really good scene. It, it Kudos to the actor. And, you know, again, I think one of the strengths of Twin Peaks is its ability to balance and contrast different emotions. Mm-hmm. That we have one of the silliest and most absurd scenes, you know, where Bobby's literally saying, you know, Doc Hayward said we should give him f- familiar stimulus, so I figured kazoos. <laughs> you got moments like that, mixed with that sort of tension of and uh, of the seriousness of Leo Johnson and kind of perceiving that uh, he's making sounds with this kazoo. He seems to kind of know what's going on. Maybe, possibly. No, he's breathing he's with the breathing kazoo, and it's so kazoo. great. Yeah, it's great. It's great. Um, speaking of great scenes that may be comic relief, but also instill fear, that also informs some sense of questionable consciousness, Nadine! <laughs> That's like the most qualifiers I've ever had to add on to a transition. <laughs> but it's true. All of those things are true. Hashtag cousins. So she comes home with the swellest dress, right? And she asks, you know, when are my parents coming back from Europe? Uh, pretty soon, honey. Poor Ed. He's (laughs) just got, like, how long is he going to have to cover this up? I can't say. (laughs) Could be one episode, could be the rest of the series. I can't say. (laughs) Uh, And, uh, you know, Nadine has the great idea. Let's pretend like we're married. And then she, like, gut punches him, twists out his, his inside. Now, listener, usually we get, like, notes ready uh, for, like, sections on stuff we're going to talk about. All I have for this section right here is Ed Punch equals hospital. We've already seen what Nadine can do oh. to a fridge. So, dear God, Ed's, like, must well, have some internal bleeding and bruising. Great facial acting, though, on uh, the actor's part there. Yeah. Like, when it when they turn around and you see Ed's face, it's a great comedic payoff. And on Honestly, I would be afraid uh, if he is taken out by Nadine to go macking because I'm pretty sure, like, uh, he will have skin torn off of him. She will turn into a feral vampire <laughs> as, Whoa. like, her sheer strength. Did you see the way she jumped on that couch? Yeah. That is one of the most impressive, like, jumps I've ever seen. Just the way she <laughs> lands on that couch has always mesmerized me. It's so great. Between, like, Bob climbing over the couch that one episode and Nadine planting herself... <laughs> like an Amazon S on that couch. Na- so good. Nadine is uh, quite the person right now, and I hope the best. And speaking of hoping his best, director David Lynch shows up on the set of Twin Peaks as Gordon Cole for the first time. Yes. We've heard the voice. Yes, and we get to hear it quite loudly throughout this episode. What? What? Sorry, Professor, get the, I can't do the Lynch voice right now. Pay dirt. Go on, Khalil. How do, how do I? Angelo Bottolamenti. Angelo Bottolamenti. <laughs> professor, I need you to speak up more clearly. <laughs> Why does Angelo Bottolamenti uh, the trigger for the David he, Lynch voice? Because he's the main composer for like David Lynch's films and Twin Peaks. So you just imagine him yelling at him and that yeah, gets oh, you into character? Angelo Bottolamenti. <laughs> I summon thee. <laughs> anyway, um, so we get Gordon Cole's first appearance. He wears like these hearing aids cranked up to the max and he needs everyone to yell at him. He clearly has trouble understanding and hearing things. Um, 
you know, with Lynch on the set, we at least know that on this episode he was around. He's not the main writer. He's not the main director. So we don't know how many of the strings he's pulling. But any concern of like how active are Lynch and Frost at this point in the show? Well, we have Lynch literally on the set right now. Yeah, we he have is there. We have Lynch on the set. Uh, and so everything is now suspect for whatever he does. Yes. Uh, what do you think of Gordon Cole for first impressions? Uh, before we get too far into Gordon oh. Cole, because I'm sure that we'll uh, get into all sorts of deep things. Yes. Uh, Gordon Cole also reveals in the background, uh, someone is sitting at Lucy's desk uh, with Lucy's uh, little tag right in yeah, front. Yeah, it's just Lucy Moran. It says, it says <laughs> the name right on the counter. Why would you assume it's anyone else? Not uh, because it is a larger man with a very uh, nice uh, poofy hair and mustache. You know, are you body shaming Lucy Moran? <laughs> Wait, I, maybe she gained some weight. She grew a mustache. <laughs> maybe. Uh, and if that is her choice, fantastic. That is great. Mm-hmm. Uh, we haven't heard much from Lucy since last time. so yeah, she's on the out cycle of the cast right now. And we don't even know where Andy is at the moment. So uh, I'm sure he's busy. <laughs> Whoever... Hawk has been in this episode saying nothing but being everywhere. So Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, and like every other time we've gotten a chance to see uh, police officers, like uh, we haven't really gotten to see their face. So maybe this is police officer Bob? Uh, I don't know. But overall, yeah, very, very interesting. I'm going to keep a better eye out for this man. He, he, David Lynch was around him. So all the secrets are revealed by this man. <laughs> He's not love, Carl. Come on. Let's not get too extreme here. Not- Jokes aside, uh... No, uh... Gordon Cole, what do you think of him? Gordon Cole. As far as Cole is concerned, uh, he is a very suspicious force. I joke with the officer, but I am genuinely serious when I'm just, like, trying to, like, gander as much information from this man. Like, if if this was played by someone else than David Lynch, I wouldn't have my eyes trained as hard on him as I do now. Yeah, it's Um, definitely a very interesting decision. Yeah, he has plenty of interesting decisions for himself. the director of Twin Peaks playing the director of the FBI. Mm -hmm. Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. So so at moments in which, like, he is shouting out loud, I'm trying to analyze, when he says, I'm very proud of you, Coop, I'm wondering whether or not that that is David Lynch talking to the character or if it is Cole talking to the character. Um, Right. It is. Well, and it's almost reminiscent to me of how a director, you know, the classic idea of like, cut, cut, you know, action. Like someone sitting in the chair in the background yelling at the stage. Yes. Um, You know, he's just a little too close. I like the idea, at least in my head, whether intentional or not, that if you were to take the director who's yelling instructions from afar and just push him onto the set, but he doesn't change his volume, that's what Gordon Cole is. He's the director yelling instructions, <laughs> but he's not toning it down because he's next to them. And Gordon Cole uh, tends to have uh, a very straightforward sense of personality that seem, it's very reflective off of Cooper. I think that they uh, have a general vibe with one another, mm-hmm. except uh, Gordon Cole has more experience uh, being the director. Sure. Now, this is also uh, pulling back with the overall Truman and Cooper ideas that mm-hmm. we've gotten earlier. Um, Coop, Coop and Truman have this point which with, with their bit in conversation. Cooper is very uneasy by the end of it. And, uh, but Truman has a very, very much confidence in Cooper. Mm -hmm. By the end of this episode, there's a point in which Gordon Cole is being very encouraging to trying to get, uh, Mr. Gerard to have a, uh, to get past his medicine and get to see beyond the other side. He does not want to take his medication. And, uh... Cooper is also pushing forward because he feels that this is best for his thoughts. And you could even argue that he's not even over, 
like overthinking it in this respect. He's going with it. But Truman seems very much against it in Give that moment. Give the man his medication. Yeah. Give the man his medication. Uh, and that meanwhile, Gordon Cole and Cooper are just has like saying, no, we got to get further past this. Truman even walks aside, if you will, mm-hmm. when this happens. Mm-hmm. So if I, I'm wondering how much Cole, Gordon Cole and Truman are going to give push and pull mm-hmm. to Cooper. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm excited to see that. Which dynamic. one's the angel and which one's the devil on the shoulder? <laughs> yes, but uh, <laughs> they can be whatever they want to be. Uh, but regardless, it's I, I can see that Truman and Cooper's relationships are definitely going to be pushed, uh, if not for this uh, Gordon Cole figure. Sure, sure. Well, as Gordon Cole calls him the one armor, we'll we'll get to the one armor later. Um, <laughs> Because before that, earlier in the episode, uh, Gordon Cole tells Cooper a few findings mm-hmm. um, that we're just kind of supposed to take at face value that mm-hmm. were done kind of off screen. So apparently there were Vicuna coat fibers in the hall outside of Cooper's room. Very expensive coats. Uh, when, expensive as soon as coats. I looked it up, they are very, very fancy and coats. And the person, if you may have noticed, who had a reaction to that the most was Truman. Truman was like Vicuna and kind of had a thought process about that. Yeah. Because there's, I imagine in Twin Peaks from the people that we've seen, uh, Pete Martell might not be uh, a suspect for owning a Vicuna coat. Mm -hmm. Um, Who would be? uh, There's a few people in mind. Uh, You don't want to speculate? I'll get to it. Okay. Because hopefully the significance of being outside of Cooper's room isn't lost on you. Yeah. Cool. There's also the blue drug and the syringe, which is a weird combination. Apparently Albert did some research on it. We'll talk about that more later. And then there were diary pages found near the bloody towel over at the train, like, crime scene area um, for Laura and Ronette. So we can about assume which diary these might be part of, (laughs) of the many, many diaries at this point. Probably the diary of Pete Martell. Um, Yeah. And then there's that line. There's some comedy lines that I guess I thought were interesting where uh, Cole says to Cooper, you remind me of a small Mexican chihuahua. Yeah. Um, For this mysterious figure that you're not sure if you trust yet, why do you think he calls... Cooper, a Mexican chihuahua? I just assumed it was code for something. Just like okay. a sense of like, we need to talk. So what do you, th- so you just think it means we need to talk? It's something along the lines of that because Cooper does bring it up again. And he's like, now tell me more about this uh, Mexican chihuahua. And he continues on a different subject. Right. So maybe it was like some sort of code that uh, deals with uh, something of a medium port uh, well, he and does, very personal. Well, in that conversation go to the idea that Cooper doesn't look well. Yeah. So the small Mexican chihuahua could be like, you look under the weather. Kind of idea. You look like a shaky puppy. You look like a shaky puppy. You know, your bags under your eyes. You might want to rest more. And he says that, you know, I'm thinking you might you might be in over your head again. You know, you went into the shoot in Pittsburgh, which I'm assuming implies like hospitalization, right? Um, because he talked about how Cooper responds basically saying that I've received injuries in this case. Otherwise, they're not similar. So whatever this case is in Pittsburgh, the similarity that is drawn here is between an injury where Gordon Cole thinks maybe you're in over your head again. Once more, secrets that Cooper might be hiding or just backstory we don't know about. Who knows? Mm. And then um, there's a conversation that happens between them where Cole kind of seems more reassured that, as Cooper puts it, he is sound in mind, body, and spirit. They're all up to the task. Yes. And, you know, acknowledges that restless nights and uneasy dreams, they come with the territory. Yes. 
the thing is, is that what Gordon Cole doesn't know that Cooper does know is that he recently, like he's told, like he, he admitted in front of Truman, went out of his jurisdiction twice and he blames himself for what happened to Audrey. Mm-hmm. So while he's telling Gordon Cole, nope, I'm fine. If this always happens, this is a normal part of the job. There is more than just the normal part of the job happening here. He's, mm-hmm. I don't know to what extent we don't know yet how much Gordon Cole knows about the dreams Cooper's been having. Mm-hmm. Are those kind of dreams common for the job mm-hmm. or are these different kinds? So again, curiosity we'll have to find out as time goes on yes um and gordon cole says two and two do not always equal four and says there's an anonymous letter sent to their home base their hq which is supposedly from Wyndham earl looks like a chess deal p to k4 yeah uh as far as it goes like the two and two does not always equal four it just might be a more broader sense of saying things are not always as they seem and you're pretty good with names so you remembered Wyndham earl yeah. Okay. It, yeah, that's an easy one to forget in the spaces in between. I think that's important that there is an opening chess move mm-hmm. uh, that is recognized as Wyndham Earl's opening chess move because it is that sense of challenge. It's sure. uh, to give to Cooper, if you will. And it almost like implies a sense of your move. What will Cooper do with this information? Who knows? Mm-hmm. But suffice to say... The fact that like Wyndham Whirl is just uh, out and about and just they by name said now. Wyndham Whirl, like Wyndham it's Whirl. like a ride at like an amusement park. Welcome to the Wyndham Whirl. Yeah, and we're still climbing up. Like <laughs> I, I really hope that there's a good drop because elsewise. <laughs> oh, I was thinking it was like a water ride kind of thing. Is what I'm thinking. Oh, but there's no like. Then we're on the lazy river part of the water ride there because there's no drop. We got to get to that yes. drop soon. <laughs> um, I mean, they're setting up a lot of different situations here between Jean Renault, the background Wyndham Earl stuff. Obviously, the Killer Bob stuff, um, whatever's going on with solving the Laura Palmer situation. Do you like all these different complications for Cooper? Do you wish they would just focus on one? What are your feelings right now? I think that they're doing fine with what they have, Mm -hmm. if you will. Uh, I'm not really, like, pushing myself, thinking to myself, man, but what about more Wyndham Earl? Wyndham Earl is supposed to be a little bit of a background threat at the moment. So I don't mind mm-hmm. the way that he is right now. It's just that there's not much that I can say at the moment. Thanks to that. Fair enough. Um, so that does bring us then to the scene you alluded to earlier with Philip Gerard, the one armed man. Oh, I, I think this, this is, I know the last thing on our notes to talk about this. I want to just let you run it for right now. Okay. Say your thoughts. I'm going to sound crazy, please. Our listeners will love hearing this. Okay. And I will too. Okay, so we get this, we we get him to the point, like, um, I almost called him Windermerle. We get uh, Mr. Gerard to the point that the magician comes out, and... That's what you're going to call him? I'll call him the magician. Can we I really call like him Mike, name. since that's what they call him? Fine. You I, can argue Mike is the magician, but... Yeah, I like the magician as the name, but we'll call him Mike. Let's call him Mike. Okay. Mike comes out. And he uh, actually answers some questions that some he avoids, like where is Bob from is one he avoids. But for the most part, he tells this strange story about how he, as well as Bob, had been in some sort of relations with one another, partners perhaps. His familiar. His familiar. And... Both of them, he considers a sense of parasite, if you will. Mm-hmm. Uh, right now, uh, Mike takes on uh, Mr. Gerard as a host. And that's 
how he's presenting himself. He uses this host from time to time. But he, elsewise, he's just this spirit. Apparently, Bob has been around for over 40 years. And if we are to consider Mr. Gerard with how he is, that means that there might be someone who could be considered a primary host. Mm -hmm. it, it is revealed at the end or um, might be leading us on that the location will be uh, the Great Northern Hotel. Based on? Based on uh, the various amounts of trees around the location and how each room has separate souls. And people coming out every night in and out. Yep. Yes. Um, I don't know if there's anything more equivalent to that at this moment. And it's Cooper that's the one who says the Great Northern. Yes. That's his conclusion. That's his conclusion, so... So, if we were to believe that, that would have made sense uh, if we were to assume, say, for example, uh, good old Bob really does not like Cooper kind of digging in where he is. Mm -hmm. And if someone were to t be taken control of, if you will, act as a host body, it'd probably be uh, Bob coming in to strike at Cooper. Now, whoever holds on to Bob is in question. That That's, again, my current thought, who shot Cooper is Bob. Mm -hmm. But holding on to someone there. And it's also noted that it is just the person is at the Great Northern. I don't think it's anyone who lives there. I don't think it's the milkman. Okay. There is strong leanings, uh, if you consider, like, the Vicuna coat, a very expensive coat. Mm -hmm. Like, you could consider Benjamin Horn. Mm -hmm. He's someone who is very present at the Great Northern Hotel, he can be there for about 40 years. That can be fitting. I want to propose someone that's going to be a little bit left field on my end. Okay. And that's going to be Leland. Okay. Leland already is very financially savvy. And to say that he might be paid well for his services, especially understanding finances and potentially understanding he might get screwed over at times, mm -hmm. he could be someone who could afford something such as a Vicuna coat, especially with how much money runs around Leland. Mm -hmm. He is someone that is connected towards the Palmer household and has seen Bob before. He is one of the people who is viewed. And as Crazy Mike, well, I don't know how Crazy Mike is. Mike is just, they haven't said Crazy Mike, so I wouldn't call Everyone's him that. Everyone's crazy. If they call him that, yeah. then sure. I, no one's really called him Crazy I, Bob, Crazy well, Bob. That's no, it's my Killer thing. Bob. You just call him crazy. I call him Crazy Bob. I like crazy. He, he could be sane. <laughs> <laughs> but yes. Um, apparently, there are those who are gifted who can see uh, Bob. But there's also the damned. Mm -hmm. And to say that as far as going through some hellish situations and for someone who has not been, been uh, quite emotionally well, mm -hmm. who could very much not benefit from the Bob parts, uh, I think Leland could be definitely considered as a damn figure. Someone who has history with Bob, someone who is connected to Bob, and his family is also very much connected to Bob. Mm -hmm. There's almost like there's a strain of Bob that has been leaking around him mm -hmm. because they have all witnessed Bob in some vicinity inside this household. So, yes, my strongest belief is currently Bob has a host, and that host is currently Leland, just from the association. Now, it also makes me wonder, how far does Bob go? Like, we know that Mr. Gerard gets uh, 
is a host to Mike. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't necessarily say that he can be the only host. Who is to say that there might not be either small inklings, like I mentioned, a strain, a lineage, a, a way that there can just be an influence that leaks out into other people or he could jump into other people. I don't know how far this parasitic way goes. But if we were to consider the craziness that is everything going on with Cousin Maddie and her influences with Crazy Bob, if we are to assume that, yes, Laura Palmer is Cousin Maddie and Maddie's going away, if, like... The influence of Bob, like, doing whatever he did to Ronette and Laura Palmer is to be concerned. If Bob finds a way out of Twin Peaks this way, oh boy! (laughs) So these are my current thoughts. So you, just to make sure I understood that last part, you believe that Bob, who you are arguing may have in the past or currently been using Leland as a host? Yes. You believe it's going to try to pass into Maddie and leave to Missoula, Montana. Potentially, yes. Or wherever Maddie ends up going. She says Missoula, but if Bob's in control. Either Bob in whole or Bob in partial. I do not know if Bob is a presence that can only exist in one space. Bob is already just a strange entity in general. So how he may behave and how he may plan Mm -hmm. and everything that's happened with Laura Palmer, it's... There's something that I feel like I'm missing here, but already, again, when I say it, it's strange. Oh, this is good. It's it's good? I cannot comment on anything, <laughs> so I cannot tell you how right or wrong you are about well, any particular element. Well, uh, as we all uh, know, I'm right on absolutely everything. Uh, <laughs> every prediction I've made has never had a falsehood. So what I will... Like, observe that I thought was interesting that doesn't spoil anything is that when Philip Gerard was being spoken through with Mike um, and he mentions that, you know, Bob's origins, where Bob comes from, uh, that can't be said, right? Uh, I thought it was interesting that the actor looks kind of to his left very purposefully, it seems like. And then it cuts from him looking to his left as he says those words. And it cuts to the people on his left, which are Truman but then I think more accurately to where he's looking, Gordon Cole. So I think it's interesting that whatever conclusions we draw from it, I just thought it was interesting that I hadn't noticed in prior viewings that when Philip Gerard says, you know, Cooper asks, where does Bob come from? Philip Gerard says, you know, that I can't say. And he turns and looks directly, I believe, at Gordon Cole. I think that's really interesting. Look straight at the director saying, like, I can't say anything. Again, the meta narr- the meta element is the director's looking at me. He doesn't want me to reveal the secret. And thus the secret police officer also in the background before is also a reveal that there is <laughs> some deeper secret David Lynch is hiding. Maybe that man is actually <sighs> Bob. I cannot reveal things. <laughs> I am being put in a hard situation. Are, is there anything you want me to comment on or answer... Or should we just let your thoughts linger as they are? I think that it's best to linger and just leave off of the fact that I think of Goofball Leland as the biggest threat in Twin Peaks right now. I mean, if you're Jacques Renault, <laughs> he probably is, right? Um, <laughs> interesting thoughts. Uh, then I guess I'll just transition directly into the last question. Um, as I always ask every episode, who killed Laura Palmer? 
Um, <laughs> the strain, the drug known as Bob. Okay. The Bob drug. Well then, listeners, <laughs> I would love to hear your commentary and feedback. Um, any thoughts, questions, or concerns on po- this podcast, Twin Peaks, the professor's correct theories? All Send correct. us your way. I will try to screen them before his eyes can be spoiled of anything. Every single prediction I've made of who killed Laura Palmer <laughs> is also correct. Our, so. our email is snakeeyedreams at gmail.com. Our Twitter handle is at snakeeyedreams, numeral one, the number one. We look forward to hearing from you. Stay safe, everyone. We'll see you in Missoula, Montana. <laughs>